Hello, listeners. Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GPCR podcast. Happy New Year. We hope you had a restful holiday season. On our end, we're excited to be back with brand new Dr. GPCR podcast episodes. Before we dive into this episode, we are excited to launch the Dr. GPCR University program with the goal of providing courses and content on all aspects of GPCR research to support our community. To kick off this new initiative, we partnered with Dr. Terry Kinakin, who will be teaching a course entitled Applying Pharmacology to Drug Discovery starting February 8th. The course will be held every Thursday through February 29th, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern time. Spots are limited to 20 in total, and the deadline to register ends on February 1st. If you register and join us, you'll get four live Zoom sessions with one-hour lectures and 30-minute Q&A each time, a 30-minute one-on-one meeting with Dr. Kinakin according to his availability, access to the cohorts group in the Dr. GPCR ecosystem, where you can find Dr. Kinakin himself and your classmates. You'll get access to the course materials and recordings. You'll get a completion certificate signed by Dr. GPCR and Dr. Kinakin. And if you'd like to take advantage of this, we're also giving you a one-year Dr. GPCR ecosystem premium membership, which is a $250 saving, which gives you access to the Dr. GPCR ecosystem contents and perks, including our forums, private groups, and to all ecosystem members. And this way you can revisit the course contents at any time and take advantage of visiting the other course contents later on. To get more information and register for the course, join the ecosystem for today for free. What are you doing April 22nd and 23rd? Join us for the inaugural Endocrine Metabolic GPCRs meeting taking place in Birmingham in the UK. This, this event will bring together scientists from both academia and industry to exchange data, technologies, and ideas in the field of GPCRs in the context of endocrine and metabolic receptors. We have a special offer for the Dr. GPCR community. Visit our website to get more information. The key topics covered at this meeting will be the latest GPCR signaling methodologies, metabolite sensing GPCR biology, and novel endocrine mediators and GPCR activation structures. This meeting is organized and we're partnering with Biospecifica to bring you this meeting. This meeting is also endorsed by the Society of Endocrinology. Mark your calendars again for the next season of the Dr. GPCR Symposia and mark your calendars for our first event of the year, which is March 15. This first symposium will cover the topic of GPCR activation and signaling. We will have talks and we will also be accommodating posters on Zoom in breakout rooms. So stay tuned. If you'd like to give a talk at any of our events, or if you'd like to be my guest on the Dr. GPCR podcast, please email us at hello at drgbcr.com. And now let's dive into this episode. Hello everyone, this is Yamina from Dr. GPCR. And this afternoon, I'm very excited to have with me Dr. Daniel Isom. And I was, I almost got it right. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I was uh, so I'm looking forward to doing this. Thank you. I was so focused on saying your last name properly that I messed up your first name. <laughs> All uh, right. You know, it happens. We were just talking about this before we hit record, and I was mentioning as well that my last name, my first and last name, have been 
butchered a couple of times, but it's it's okay. As long as, uh, as we know why we're here, what we're doing, uh, the rest doesn't matter. All right, exactly. Dan, let's start at the beginning. Can you please introduce yourself? Tell us who you are and what do you do? Sure. Uh, my name is Dan Isom. I'm an associate professor uh, with tenure in the molecular and cellular pharmacology department at the University of Miami, Miller School of Medicine, uh, the hot Miami, not the Miami in Ohio. <laughs> I have appointments in the, uh, we have a cancer center here, an NCI designated cancer center, and also our Institute for Data Science and Computing. Um, uh, and I run a lab that does leading edge research in GPCRs and other proteins using computation and uh, experimental work. This is really cool. And I promised I would ask you, where does your last name come from? Does it have any meaning or any, um, um, where where does it come from, basically? I think I'm tired. It's Thursday night and I'm yes. getting... <laughs> I'm with you. It's five o'clock. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Isom, uh, I don't exactly know. I think the origins were Isham, which is a European uh, name. Uh, but I, when I was younger, I was told it was also derived from Native American heritage. Um, there are also, uh, in Mississippi, there are also um, uh, uh, people with Isom as a first name that uh, uh, I found. So it's kind of mysterious. It's, it's kind of rare. It's kind of unusual. Yeah. But despite that, despite that, despite, you know, against all odds, there's another Isom in science mm -hmm. uh, at another UM, Michigan. Okay. And she's in the pharmacology department <laughs> and she is the chair. So when you go to Google, Isom, UM, you get me at the University of Miami and Lori Isom at the University of Michigan. And we're wow. both in the pharmacology department. <laughs> Interesting. And you have absolutely no uh, relationship other no than relationship being a... whatsoever. I, I met her. I came to know of her because the NIH reached out to me because I was going to get a grant associating with the associated with the illuminating the druggable genome initiative. And she was involved with that. And they wanted to know if there was a conflict of interest. Wow. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, Lori Isom, you know, she's consults. You know, on this, I'm like, uh, nope, no relation whatsoever. So since then, we've met um, several times and, you know, we've become good colleagues. That is awesome. I love that story. That's why you told me, let's let's hit record and then you can I can ask the question. This is really <laughs> yeah. Cool. What are the odds, right? It is an unusual. It is a rare last name. But to add to add, when we moved to Miami, my my son uh, uh, at first he was in middle middle school. But after a few years, he was in high school. And there were two sisters with the last name Isom. Okay. <laughs> and everyone thought he was their little brother. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that is so. awesome. That is really cool. All right. Let's talk a bit about science. And I'm very interested in hearing your story as a scientist. Did you always know that you wanted to be in science? You know, I was thinking about this today. And, and I can remember as a young kid, being very interested in science and and wanting to be uh, uh, and thinking about being a scientist and interested in scientific things. 
but I was also really good at drawing early on. And so that caught, you know, the attention of those around me. And, and so this, this life of art really was, um, began to just develop, you know, throughout grade school and middle school. And that was my focus. Um, uh, I also played a lot of, I was, I was, uh, athletic. I played a lot of sports. I really like sports. Um, and so, you know, really I was a late bloomer when it came to science because all through high school, I was focused on fine art. And when I graduated from high school, I actually went to um, art school. I had a scholarship to the Cleveland Institute of Art. I was born and raised in Cleveland. And at the time I was also playing in a pretty popular band. And so it just worked out that I could play music, you know, and, 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 and do the art. And um, while I was at art school, it was in the universe, it was in the university circle area. And for any of your listeners that are familiar with Cleveland and the university circle area, that is the cultural epicenter and the intellectual epicenter and the medical epicenter where the Cleveland clinic case, case Western reserve is there. The Cleveland orchestra is there, the museum of art. Um, and so that's where I really developed, you know, uh, my, my formative, uh, years and intellect. Um, and my majors uh, in art school were sculpture and um, and painting. Uh, and uh, the way that CIA was run, it was two foundation years and then three years in your major. Um, but to pay the bills, I had a minor in medical illustration. And for mm -hmm. medical illustration, I had to do something they called cross register. And so I had to take science classes at Case, Cleveland State, John Carroll University, whatever needed to be done. And I was really good at them and I had never had them before. And I was really interested in them. And so I secretly decided that I wanted to switch out of art into science and I didn't tell anybody and I applied to Case. And I got in. And my parents thought I was crazy, but <laughs> I did it and I switched uh, and I transferred to Case. I mean, you must, they were scared too, because I'm first generation everything, first generation college student, first generation PhD, academic, you know, they had no idea what I was doing, but I switched. Uh, I, I got a double major in chemistry and biochemistry. Um. My first year, I graduated in three years. My first year, I was lucky I got a dorm room that where I could close my door and trap myself and I didn't have to listen to anyone else. And that was my catch up year because I, okay. I really had been focused in high school on art. And my dad was a janitor at my high school and mm -hmm. I could remember asking him to get me math books so that I could catch up on some of the mathematics I needed. Um, and I just spent that year just, you know, grinding. Wow. And, and then the, su the summer came and you could take organic chemistry in the summertime, both semesters. And I learned that if I did that, then I could leapfrog. And that opened up all the other science classes. And so that's what I did. And that's how I got out in three years. It also made all my friends mad because they came back in the fall and I was done with organic chemistry. Wow. Um, but that was a turning point for me, organic chemistry too. I thought I wanted to be a physician, but when I got into the organic chemistry, that really compelled me towards 
the basic research and what I eventually ended up doing. What an interesting story. I Do you still draw or sculpt in your free time or do you ever use art now? I, there was a time when I could sneak some drawing and doodling in and, you know, it's a great stress reliever, but, you know, once I started, once I started building my family, there's less and less time, yeah. you know, I told myself doing the science would give me some downtime to uh, do some <laughs> art. Yeah. Who are how you naive, kidding? <laughs> how naive was that, right? Um, but what I found is that, you know, this, the computational stuff I do, uh, at the end of the day ends up being highly visual you know a lot yeah. of network-based connections structure-based connections and you know the figures that we make often get there's comments on you know how they're assembled and put together and so i think that i'm just that's my outlet you know right now for that sort of thing and you know i definitely get the bug every once in a while though just to like i wish i had you know a little place where i can go and like you yeah. know with easel and set up shop but you know not not yet not right now <laughs> no, I feel you I I have zero zero art skills but I do like to paint by numbers because then I don't have to think about it yeah yeah and I've done in, in four years I've done two the third one um I think I had to go buy a, the the kit again because the paint dried out from the first one yeah and then I finished <laughs> and then, then I gift re-gifted to to a friend of mine the remaining of the paint which obviously was enough with the Canva, <clears throat> but yes, I do understand the um, the lack of time. Of course, right? But there are two things in my life that are kind of like a mental wormhole where I can sit down and eight hours will go by and I won't realize it. One is coding and the second is painting. Wow, that's amazing. That is amazing. And I actually forgot what I wanted to ask. No, actually I wanted to make a comment uh, about art in general or, or just art and, and science. I feel like in my case, when I used to work in the lab and I used to look at the cells under the microscope, I mean, that is just so beautiful when the cells are healthy. Mm. And then I've I've looked at my hex cells so many times or any other cells that I could tell just by the way the, the light from the microscope was going through the plate if they were happy or not. And that's so satisfying. Or a beautiful dose response curve. And you're like, I couldn't even come up with the numbers to fit it this way. And the response of yourself gives you that. No, you're you're absolutely right. I I, I kind of was on a run of collecting old like TEM books of images of cells and, and Golgi and the mitochondria, <laughs> just because aesthetically their composition is so interesting and often just so naturally balanced. Yes. And um and uh I mean they have all these competitions now, right? For like best microscopy images and yeah. and they're just stunning. And even the field of medical illustration, right? And uh, and and what they've done there have just, just far surpassed anything I imagined, you know, mm -hmm. they would ever be uh, for developing and, and, you know, conveying understanding. You know, these movies that you see like in, you know, the, some of these labs, like I know the, the Brian Roth lab, they put out several of these movies and they're not the only ones. It's just what comes to mind yeah. of these, you know, molecule uh, GPCRs, agonists coming yeah. in, you know, that, that just didn't exist. Right. And it's, yeah. it's a hugely um, it's a hugely useful tool for 
you know, teaching uh, people at all levels. I agree. I agree, which reminds me that there is, I can't remember her name. I think her name might be Piper. Uh, she's in Australia and she is a, she has all sorts of videos like this where she illustrates molecular interactions. It's, it's really cute little movies where you're like, oh, wow, I didn't think about my receptor this way or I didn't think about this interaction this way. And that to me speaks to the artistic side of 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 science. Absolutely. And the name's familiar. And that probably is what I would have been doing had I stayed on the art artistic path, I, I think. Um, that's, that's what I would imagine. I wanted to ask before we move on and talk about how did you get into studying GPCRs? Because this is the Dr. GPCR podcast. I'm very curious to hear more about the, the uh, medical illustrations that you were doing. What kind of work, what does that look like? What well, did that look like? At the time, it was it was primarily hand drawn or airbrush um, images um, that were meant to convey any um, any concept that a, a medical student or a student uh, would need to learn. So you've seen some of these, you know, old like maybe you've done a dissection of a cat, and you have like or, or a frog, right, in elementary school or middle school or secondary school, and you have these books with these drawings, right? Yeah. That is the most basic type of medical illustration as a guide. So you're an educator. Um, oh. and you know, you can, and it, and it traverses scales. So you can have people, that's why you had to take the courses. You had to understand cells from molecules to organelles, to lipids, to tissues. And you had to use, you know, it's where art meets imagination because you're trying to convey, you know, uh, you're trying to accurately convey the science, but in a way that you can digest the information. For instance, that's why we're not all pathologists. You look at, right, you you know, you see these talks and 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 you're not familiar with the cell type or the tissue. And and someone says, look at all the lumen. And you're like, what? <laughs> yeah. What does that eat what, in the winter? What? what? <laughs> um, and so it, you'd take information like that and you'd find a way to clarify it. I love it. So art led you to science. What led art. you to GPCRs? Ooh, what led me to GPCRs? Um, there's still a long way to go uh, between um, finishing the art and getting to GPCR. Should I fill in that gap? Of course, please. Yes. So I was I so I graduated from Case and then I really wanted to fold proteins on a computer back before it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> now it's really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, and there were a few places where this was being done, but at the time the best place was Johns Hopkins. And so I really wanted to go to Hopkins. Um, I'm pretty sure I barely got in. Uh, I believe I had a faculty advocate. I mean, I know this now. I didn't know this then, right? Yeah. That really pulled for me. And it's just a great example of how one person can absolutely, you know, change your life. And so uh, when I went to Hopkins, I thought I would be folding proteins on a computer. Um, for all those grad students out there, I didn't get my first choice of lab when I was doing my rotation. I got my second choice. And that was protein electrostatics with a guy named uh, Bertrand Garcia Moreno. And so I really worked at a very reductionist level 
studying how protons regulate protein structure and function. And that's what my PhD was in. And so what I wanted to do then is to parlay that that um, skill set into protein design. And I wanted to design proteins that harvested energy mm-hmm. um, before there were any real initiatives for alternative energy. So this is 2006, right? And so there was really nowhere to go to do that other than a photosynthesis lab. There, were, there weren't like these institutes where, you know, focused on alternative forms of energy or harnessing energy from biological sources, I should yeah. say. Um, at that time, the Ventner Institute had a small program on biohydrogen, but they weren't, um, you know, they were keeping it small. And so I decided to do a postdoc in protein design, thinking that I could put those skills together and begin doing it myself. And so I went to Duke to do that under Homa Holenga. Uh, this guy was a protein designer. He was uh, in the biochemistry department there. And he had a, he was leading a big DARPA consortium that included David Baker and others. He's you know Hama was the one that had started it. Um, he had uh, and and it, his claim to fame was that you take a protein of a known fold that's not an enzyme mm-hmm. or doesn't bind something, you treat it as an engineerable scaffold, and then you do some calculations to convert certain residues to actually bind or do the chemistry you want. So you're just treating the fold as a scaffold and then taking it over. And so they thought they had some success in the lab, but, and that was before my time. And when I joined that lab, uh, uh, I was tasked with trying to miniaturize the biophysical assays I had been doing ligand binding, protein folding, things of this nature to do very high throughput screening of protein designs. Um, And unfortunately, during that time, some of the previous work had been called into question and it had to be retracted, which caused all sorts of problems. Um, And so uh, I managed to get two quick manuscripts related to these uh, techniques out of that uh, postdoc, but you know, one day Hama came in and was like, "You, you and others, just you know, you got to leave soon." Um, and uh, that was a big life lesson for me. Much later, because it seems like the worst possible thing that could have yeah. happened for my, because I, I had this dream of opening a lab, yeah. right? And the worst possible, it seemed like the worst possible thing that could have happened, but. In, in retrospect, it was the best possible thing that could have happened because I would never be sitting here talking to you with the career I have had I not had to take the next step, right? So, comfort, so this out of the comfort zone, right? Uh, out, of the, out of the comfort zone. It was the Great Recession. I had a family. I had two kids. I had bought a house. That w- it was limited options. And I meet Henrik Dolman at the University of Chapel Hill. And he's just like an angel there. He's he's a, a wonderful person, you know, a wonderful mentor. And he is very open-minded. And from the get-go, he felt like I could bring very unique things to the field, right? Uh, that he didn't know what, I didn't know what, but if I just was, was familiar with it. So that is how I got into GPCRs. I moved a few miles down the street from Duke to UNC, 
uh, in Henrik's lab. At, at that time, he was in the uh, biochemistry and biophysics department, but now he's um, now he's chair of pharmacology there. Yeah. Uh, top pharmacology program in the country, I believe, um, by the metrics. Um, and, but it's weird. He works in East, right? He, he works, he, he studied GPCR signaling in East. You have one GPCR pathway for your listeners that aren't familiar. And, um, many of the fundamentals of GPCR signaling had been discovered in yeast. Um, um, uh, gap proteins, MAP kinase cascades, you know, and they have, everyone was surprised that they were conserved in human cells. Um, and so I, uh, I had been working um, on developing software to identify proteins that were likely to be proton sensors. And so my first day in his lab, no joke, I downloaded some G-alpha structures from the PDB, did my calculations, and I walked into his office and I said, I think that G-alpha subunits might be proton sensors. And so spent the next several years proving that um, and public and, you know, developing the, the yeast and biophysical systems to do that. And in the end, really kind of carved out a very unique kind of niche and 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 way forward um, and had expanded my knowledge base and skill set from just doing, you know, protein chemistry and biophysics to doing, you know, systems biology, to knowing to doing the yeast work, to getting into cell culture. And so I really had had begun to be able to expand uh, across scales. Uh, and all this time continuing to code and develop structure-based informatics algorithms that I was using to make predictions that then we would test experimentally, either the biophysical or cellular level. I love and it. So, yeah. And so he gave me the space to do that. And then... How did you meet Henrik? Or when... I know, I know you mentioned that you were in this in this position where you had to leave your your lab at the lab at Duke, obviously it's the worst thing that can happen to you when somebody says, well, actually <clears throat> this is it. Or yeah. Sooner, so sooner yeah, than so, you sooner think. The better. <laughs> exactly. Um, and obviously you mentioned having two children, having bought a house. I can only imagine the amount of stress that went with that, but how did you overcome that amount of stress and meet Henrik? So, um, I've always, uh, I've always tried to stay optimistic and I have the attitude that usually things turn out okay. okay. Um, so starting from that base, um, uh, I, I, it takes help. It takes a village, right? Uh, uh, game recognizes game. Um, my light went off behind me. Do you need me to turn it back on? No, I think it's perfect. Oh, I think it's actually Everything, even better. It's a, it's, a, it's a very green building, right? It's, <laughs> I have a very, I have a very, I have a very cool and modern lab. So, I um, <laughs> love it. Uh, so I mean, it take you need people in your life that help you make these connections. And for me, it was uh, this guy uh, at Duke, Terios, wonderful, wonderful biophysicist and a Mars spectroscopist, and he knew Henrik. Okay. And he knew that that and he had this feeling that that we would work well together. Mm -hmm. 
And so he went the extra mile and put us in touch with one another. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the rest was was history. I love it. Um, the, that that's that's one of the reasons I was asking this because the audience and we were just talking about the um, Spotify wrap up of twenty twenty three for us. But I do know at least on Spotify that the majority of our listeners are between twenty four and thirty five, and this is the time where you're finishing up your PhD, you're doing a postdoc, you're moving on, you're building, we're starting to establish a career. And I always like to talk a little bit about, um, you know, forming connections, being open to meeting new people, networking, or even finding a mentor, which is a, it's this big word, you know, finding a mentor. I'm looking for a mentor type of thing. But this is the type of things that I think you, as a scientist or as a person, you need to be doing on a regular basis because, and you need to be helpful to others as well. Absolutely. I mean, it's how the system works. I can give you a very clear example. When I when I was leaving Duke and uh, and that situation, I did try to do job. You know, I, I did try to enter the job market because I did have a few papers as a postdoc, mm -hmm. and I just didn't have a community. I didn't have. You know, I had been so stuck in just getting the work done, not making connections. I just didn't have that cloud of people that knew I was up and ready right yeah. and as soon as i got into hendrick's lab and as soon as i got into the gpcr community and as soon as i was going to meetings right it, it just i had i had a a family i had a group mm -hmm. right and i and an identity no i think that's 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 truly it and i feel like that the gpcr community in general is very welcoming it's diverse and if you send somebody an email and say, do you have 15 minutes? I read your paper. I'd like to ask you some questions or I'm planning my next step. And I was wondering if I could um, have you as a sounding board. I really like uh, your work. Do you? I find you very impressive. Most people will say, of course, I have 15 minutes for you. Um, uh, even further, I mean, I have colleagues in other fields that recognize that that this field is far more open, right? Yes, everyone's concerned about being scooped about certain things, yeah. right? But in our field, I can tell you that, you know, people are much more open than in many other fields. And it's very unique. And, you know, I've even been in situations where people are like, no, I'm not going to work on that because this other person, I know they are, right? I, they, there could be a natural competition there, right? Yeah. There's a yeah. need to be. But um, that's one of the things I really like about about the field. It, it, it's healthy. I think so too. I think so too. Especially, well, that was that was one of the motivations behind. I loved GPCRs from day one in undergrad in between two thousand and two thousand and three when Michel Bouvier was teaching signaling, and I was like, we we had many other classes this i i am talking to you and i can see myself sitting in the bench in the classroom and then actually at the time i don't think it was uh, it was this old school projector with the uh with the plastic what's it yeah, called yeah, in, yeah. in english um you know and, and michelle was exactly and michelle was drawing on that and we were looking and we had the uh, molecular biology of the cell book 
which was super heavy and we carried it around all the time type of thing. And from that moment, GPCRs were always a central part of my imagination. I think it's a, as, as a system, it's a fascinating one, but also it comes with this group of, of scientists from all around the world. And when I started Dr. GPCR, it was out of couple of frustrations I was in a position and in a job that I wasn't that I didn't like particularly I don't think he would he was fitting who I am as a person and it was an outlet for me to create this podcast one to do something else to keep my mind off of it off off of that situation but at the same time it was to get closer to the GPCR crowd to bring the community closer because again thinking to your position I was in a situation where I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have a village. I knew a couple of people, but not enough for me to say, I'm in this position. I don't like it. I want to switch. Do you know of anything? Or can we have a conversation around, what do you think I should be doing? Or you know me enough, in your opinion, what am I really good at? What, how should I be thinking? Because... As, as in your case, when you were mentioning this, when you're in this stressful situation and you need to get yourself out, it's very hard unless you have a village, unless you have the positive attitude or even the ability to say, okay, this is me in this problematic situation. I'm stepping out and I'm looking at myself and at everything surrounding me. And that's a very hard thing to do. Absolutely. And you can't control the doors that will open for you. That's what your network does. Exactly. Exactly. And I think being nice and kind and collaborative and in keeping in touch Absolutely. with people and, you know, the easiest thing is you read a paper from, from someone, you like it, just send them a note. It doesn't cost mm -hmm. anything. It makes their day. Absolutely. I mean, you nailed it with the kindness. It's life's too short. You know, we're all working very hard and, uh, yeah. you know, and I, uh, that's how, that's how we, you know, every day in the group and in the community, that's definitely the hat we're trying to wear. Absolutely. All right. So you're, you're in Hemp's lab, you finished or you're finishing up these projects and how do you decide that you want to become a professor and not go? Oh, geez. I've, I've already known that. That's why I'm still in the game. That's why I'm <laughs> in my second post. I was a postdoc for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine years. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I was hardcore. Wow. Yeah. And so um I was I I I really wanted to to you know have my shop and mm -hmm. have it be open to everyone and you know do some cool science. And so uh, yeah, things were beginning, you know, I, it came to a point, I mean, I actually had a very difficult time getting uh, a job. I had a very difficult time getting interviews. Um, I really didn't uh, have many interviews at all. And, my, you know, maybe some of that was due to my unusual path, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, but it took one interaction and I was at a Gordon conference. Uh, and this is the one that is out is it Long Beach or is it, it's the, I'm, I'm blanking now. It's the oh, Ventura. The Ventura. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, and Henrik was giving a talk and it was related to the pH work we've been doing together. 
And um, uh, Vlad Slipak, who is my colleague here at the University of Miami, came up to my poster and said, would you be interested in coming to the University of Miami? Mm -hmm. And I said, sure, I absolutely, I'll interview. He's like, well, you have to have your um, application in, in a day or two, because we're basically done. We've interviewed everyone. And so I said, okay, I'll do that. But I didn't do it. <laughs> I was like, I didn't know how serious he was. And so he found me and he raised me an email. He's like, what are you doing? I need your application. Wow. So, um, so long story short, I went, uh, I had never been to Miami before. Have you ever been to Miami? No, never. It's something yeah. I, re I really yeah. want to visit though. Oh, yeah. I'm very curious. Most, most people haven't. That was my first time. So you could imagine my shock. Um, and so I gave the talk, did my visit, got on the plane, and I had an offer for the position when I got off the plane. Wow. And you hear these stories of having to wait for months or whatever. Like, And so uh, very quickly, they brought me back out. And I was, the joke was, I was 403. Okay. I was candidate number 403. And they didn't want to go to 404. Uh, I didn't know that until much later, mm -hmm. but it was that chance interaction that finally opened that wow. door. Wow. Um, 403. So that means they interviewed 402 people that they rejected. Well, or... well they looked at four, you know, now applications. A, okay. Uh, yeah. Maybe. Applications. Yeah. But still. Um, yeah. I mean... So it's talk about feeling fortunate, right? I'm, yeah. I feel very blessed to be in this position. I think it was about fit. You know, they were looking for someone very oh, yeah. special yeah, or yeah. specific and you were yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's been great. I mean, we can talk a little bit um, uh, more about that, but um, uh, I guess, you know, I, the take home there is that I, I really knew what I wanted to do for a really long time. And so I was very motivated by that. And uh, I was able to absorb some of the hits, but it was, it was, you know, it was difficult. And I was definitely at the end of my rope and going into mm -hmm. industry wouldn't have been bad. That still would have been fun and exciting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I was right at that point. And if, if anyone listening is, is right there too, you know, things, doors can open, like, you know, keep, you can keep yeah. trying to make these connections and, um, and, and you just never know. I would have never imagined that I'd live in Miami. Yeah, from Cleveland and then to, Cleveland. Yeah, to exactly. North Carolina. I, just, I never would have imagined it. Um, and, you know, uh, it's so exciting. And, and I hope everyone else can be as excited about where they're going next. But the key is I really knew, right? I wasn't on the fence. Mm -hmm. um, and so that fueled me. Yeah, I think I think that that that's really great advice to anyone listening. I think first you need to decide what is it that you want to do? What does that entail? Is that a lifestyle that works for you or not? And then and then put together a plan and then persist. You never know. <laughs> I'm not sure being a PI and getting a grant and getting grants is a lifestyle anybody wants. <laughs> it depends. It's something that I, I cannot see myself doing. I mean, it would drive me nuts having to write a grant. I mean, even writing papers was such a 
an extra effort. I would rather be in the lab designing, running experiments, analyzing data. I can spend I hours in front of Prism and looking at data and then playing around with it. But writing, no. I can, I'm happy if, if I have, if I, if somebody writes it and then I have to edit, not a problem. Love it. But if I have to start from scratch on the blank page, that is not an easy task for me. So I, I, have, a, I have a question for you. Yes. So, um, you know, Grammarly? Yes. So I was like, I'll try this, you know, just we'll see. I'm into, I like trying, I do AI stuff. So I like to try out AI things for a while. So I'm like, I'll pay for Grammarly. I want to see if it's helpful. And so it's kind of just been there now and I'm used to it, but I got it in March. And mm -hmm. one of the funny things is, it's not an advertisement for Grammarly, is that they send you these emails periodically and they tell you like, you know, what you screwed up. <laughs> like what you're good at like apparently the vocabulary i use is better than 95 percent of anyone else so just i'm throwing that out there um cool uh but then they also tell you how many words you've typed okay so how many words do you think i have typed since march of 2023 i don't know <laughs> I'm, I'm actually thinking between a very high number or kind of a very low number of i don't know 100 i'm just <laughs> speculating what do you think right. it is i i don't know any clues can you give me any clues what's what should i be it's higher than five hundred thousand and less than 10 million i don't know a million <laughs> it's it's 3.75 million words i'm like how and i'm like oh it's my job Emails, yeah, grants, papers, code. Well, coding doesn't count. If coding counted, then it might be, you know, I don't know, double. Wow. Yeah. That's... And I'm like, we almost do that. Not, you know, that's, you know, I mean, yeah. it's been since March, but that's a lot of words. It is. It is. That's fascinating. So actually, right? my husband had signed up to, to Grammarly. Uh, but I didn't know that you get these these reports. I'm gonna have to ask him about his reports <laughs> and see what does that look like. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, so that's a small window into into the the you know into the job. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it it all depends on whether what you want to do. And to your point, if you know what is it that you want very early on, then you have to stay the course. Absolutely. Let's talk a bit about GPCRs. All right. We're we talked a little bit about proton sensing, and and G proteins that you you mentioned in the beginning, day one in Hendrix lab. But what are you currently working on, and is it proton sensing GPCRs, or proton <laughs> sensing proteins, or yeah, yeah, yeah. what are we talking about? Good question. What are we working on now? So, um, I have. I was actually part of the first cohort when I when I first came to Miami. I got an R thirty five Mira grant, and I was the first cohort of early stage investigators. And so, the title of that grant was pH regulation of cell surface receptors. Yeah. So, I've always been agnostic, and it's meant to be agnostic. But really, the focus has been G protein coupled receptors. We do have interest in RTKs and ion channels and other types of receptors, and and you know membrane proteins. 
but it has been gpcrs um we're also very interested in how uh ph and protons regulate signaling pathways and components um and you know ligand receptor interactions in, in a very broad sense uh and which leads me to you know the problem like uh I, you had asked me earlier at some point what my favorite gpcr is well i have a I have a big problem because i don't know i i also can't tell you who my favorite band is etc cetera, etc cetera, because my brain doesn't work that way so maybe this is just my global problem but <laughs> we're really agnostic and we work on too many okay. gpcrs um but if i was forced to pick my favorite it would be the proton sensors mm -hmm. um, and the reason for that is that you know, they were discovered 20 something years ago and they had histidines on the extracellular face. And so naturally it's like, oh, those are the residues that are responsible for proton sensing. Completely reasonable, you know, what's to be expected. And surprise, surprise, when you mutate some of them, the receptor doesn't work as well, et cetera. So the conclusion was that the proton sensing was, you know, coming from the histidines. But this is a good example of how the lab works. We did a structure-based calculation um, uh, looking at the proton sensors and comparing them to all other G-protein coupled receptors. And they had this very unique structural feature, which was this triad. It's a geometric construct. They're not actually in contact. Well, two are, but of acidic residues that were in the core, right? So they're not on the surface. They're, they're deep in the core. Long story short, it turns out that those residues are what is responsible for the proton sensing of, of these receptors. And it was just, it's been such a, a fun ride figuring that out um, and continuing to do uh, those experiments. And, you know, given what, given what the mission has been, that's like a perfect win. We do a calculation we predict the residues that are responsible for proton sensing. We make intelligent mutations to test them and we're correct. That's the win for us in any, yeah. you know, in any system. Um, and, uh, and you know, it's, they're, they're challenging. They're challenging because, you know, conceptually, like, you know, when you, when you search them in the literature, it's like they're involved in cancer and one paper says they're good. One paper says they're bad. Right, they get them endocytosed. They're going to turn on, right? Why? You know, we don't know, and so they're considered dark um, receptors, pharmacologically dark receptors, mm -hmm. and that is my favorite group, and that's where we've excelled, and that's where we've provided the most insight in the pharmacologically dark receptors, as defined by the Illuminating the Druggable Genome Initiative. Um, HCAR three is another favorite one. Hydroxycarboxylic acid receptor three. We discovered that a tryptophan metabolite is its endogenous agonist. Um, and the fun thing about that receptor is it's only in humans and primates. Lower eukaryotes don't have it. So, and it's really important for fatty acid metabolism and immunity and other things. And that discovery has prompted a number of other studies and papers that have come out. Uh, for the importance of uh, HCAR3. Um, but um, currently, we probably have 
between 70 and 100 receptors that we're actively studying. And we can do that because we're using um, both a yeast-based and then HEC or whatever uh, uh, based systems. And so our natural workflow is that we can do large pooled experiments Mm -hmm. in these yeasts that we've CRISPR engineered to contain human receptors and components. Um, and that allows us to do, you know, instead of being in cell culture, we're at the lab bench doing pooled experiments, just yeah. doing yeast, yeast work. Um, and then when we, when we make, you know, when we have a finding, we then translate it out to heck and then whatever cell type we need. We're using all the assays that everyone out there has created. Um, uh, a lot of Brett. You've yeah. done Brett. And I'm, yes, I'm Brett biased here. GPC here and Brett biased here. Um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, so. I, I want, and I, you actually answered the question I wanted to ask is since you mentioned that you work on so many GPCRs at the same time, what does that look like in the lab? Because mm -hmm. obviously if you were to work on, people can spend 30 years working on the same GPCR in, in the HEC system and then still discover things around around that. But what does that, from, from a discovery perspective, what does that sort of, do you always go full circle? So you try and predict something um, about the GPCR, about its function, its proton sensing capabilities on, on a dry lab format, then you test it out in yeast in a wet lab. And then every when you discover something, then you can take that GPCR of interest, for example, and then go do a deep dive into that receptor in a hex cell system and do breath and you name it. And then is there any information out of those wet lab experiments that go back into the dry lab aspects of it to kind of expand and build on that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, we've been we've been fortunate that it's been kind of a one one way road in that our our predictions have been good, so that we get to the destination that we expect. Mm -hmm. yeah. If we didn't get to the destination we'd expect, we we'd go back. Um, and, you know, that's a symptom of, you know, us still being a young lab. We kind of had a first big push of papers and now, and now we have the second big push that are coming out and we have, we have the time now to do exactly what you said, like, look at some of this data, go back, refine calculations, go in and look at, you know, other aspects, um, of, of, of their function. Uh, it's, um, it's a balancing act. That's for sure. But, you know, the, the questions we're asking require a comparative analysis. Let me give you an example. So we made this discovery of uh, proton gating of GPCR activation. Mm -hmm. And so I just told you about uh, the proton sensors. They're activated by protons. And they probably have other endogenous ligands, too, that we're unaware of. Um, but in this case, what we're talking about is we're talking about receptors that are uh, activated by an agonist, cannot be activated by a proton, but the proton actually gates the ligand binding to the receptor. Yeah. And so what we, what we found were that some receptors, some ligand receptor interactions are very sensitive to pH. 
And we found that some don't care. Um, we found that some are just graded. And so in order to do that sort of study, you have to have the right system. So for us, yeast is the proper system uh, to begin in because mm -hmm. when you change pH on the outside of yeast, we discovered that the pH on the inside does not change. Mm -hmm. That's not true in a hex cell. When you change pH on the outside, you do get some change on the inside. So we wanted to just control for that. So what we did was we put 30 human GPCRs into the yeast system and then we compare how their ligand-dependent activation changes as a function of pH. And we call this putting the pH into pharmacology. Love it. You know, there are many receptors that we call Boolean-like, the, the, the dopamine uh, 2 receptor, because it's on at pH 7, but as soon as you drop the pH a little bit, it's off. So it's almost like a step function. Mm -hmm. But then the HCAR3 is more like a graded receptor. As you drop pH, it gets turned off more gradually. Mm -hmm. And then you have like the melatonin receptor that doesn't care what the pH is. It just functions the same. You also have some receptors, mainly currently that have carboxylic acid ligands that actually become more active when you lower pH. So we have this rich diversity of examples of how receptor ligand interactions and their synergy have developed this exquisite level of control that has just been missing from pharmacology. All drug screens have been done at pH 7.4. Yes. If you, right? If you yeah. take an inhibitor for the adenosine receptor, caffeine, and lower pH, it's no longer an inhibitor, right? And this has massive implications for when these receptors are endocytosed and then they experience the pH changes in the endosome yeah. or an, inf an inflammatory microenvironment where you're acidified and you have the immune response or in a tumor microenvironment. We're talking all about the same pH range band. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I find it very fascinating. And, and you're right. We don't yet have the answer to these questions. How is receptor function in ligand interaction and then signaling influenced by pH depending on where your receptor is expressed and where does it would it signal differently once it gets internalized and it ends up in an endosome or a different cellular compartment where the pH is different absolutely you know it. and we're we're getting pretty good at this I mean some of the work that's going to be coming out in the next year we should have a big dump again uh, is like the adenosine receptor. That was the only receptor that we discovered a proton itself can turn on. Again, we're in the yeast system. So if we don't add adenosine in, if we just lower pH, we get this nice sigmoidal curve. It comes on, it looks just like GPR68. Yeah. We can, we can make very precise mutations to remove that pH sensing, but retain full agonism of adenosine. So you can imagine an animal where, you know, collaboratively we we use this type of, you know, can is regulated by pH. Well, presumably we don't know if it's physiologically relevant mm -hmm. and one that can't be and say, you know, is there a phenotype? Maybe there isn't. I don't know. But those I are the know. sort of experiments yeah. we could do. I love it. This is super interesting. Plus, um, I don't know much about any mutations specifically in the adenosine receptor, but maybe there are mutations that occur in humans that actually <laughs> shut on and off this, this response. That could be a really cool, cool study to do.
Yeah, so that's something that we we kind of look at too. We monitor Nomad and other big sets of um, uh, exome and genome sequencing mm -hmm. initiatives to to look for clues that way as well. Um, uh, but you know, but at, at the end of the day, you know, we're really kind of on the fringe. You know, um, we're not we're not working on the more traditional, conventional aspects mm -hmm. of of the field, and I'm okay with that if the field's okay with that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and pushing and um, and you know, I I feel like I feel like a weirdo in that sense, but but you know, I think, and I think I'm not alone in this view. I think that. In the next hundred years, we're going to find that GPCRs do way more than the canonical G protein coupling and beta arrestrin recruitment, right? Yeah. There, are, and this okay. is already beginning to emerge. You know, there's so much functionality hidden in the NNC termini of of these things. You know, yeah. some there are atypical chemokine receptors that only you know you know suck up arrestin, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And um, and I kind of am very comfortable in that kind of high risk area, like finding the new weird features of of these receptors. I love it. I think it's important to keep an open mind and study these these effects, especially developing tools to be able to measure these mm -hmm. becomes very important. And yes, you're right. Everybody does beta resin and G protein. Um, because one, it's relevant. I don't know how compared if we knew all the aspects of GPCR signaling and we had the ability to measure it and classify these pathways in a specific context. I don't know how much what what would be the ranking of G protein signaling versus beta resin versus anything else. Right, right. But we've developed enough tools to measure G protein signaling and beta resin recruitment. Great, but you're right. Beyond that, what else? And how does the environment in general influence G protein, GPCR signaling in specific contexts? You can have a different cellular context, you can have a different cellular compartment context. And we need tools and we need to understand this. So I really I think I think you're doing really cool and interesting things. Well, I appreciate that. I, you know, it, it even extends um, I mean, I really like to think about receptors that aren't even in humans, right? This is a huge family. And I maybe that's maybe that's more what I mean. That maybe in, you know, maybe in what we know for humans, it's mostly G protein coupling, beta arrestin. And there there, there definitely are other things that that we can learn. But I just have this sense that there are far more exotic you know, um, uh, functionalities that we're, that we will slowly begin to peel back that will teach us, you know, through like through an evolutionary lens, you know, in other organisms, things that then again, bounce back to humans, right? Just like all of the GPCR work done in yeast had relevance. Um, yeah. No, I love it. I love it. Then I guess it's needless to ask if you think GPCRs are still good truck targets, considering <laughs> what we just talked about. <laughs> I think they're, I think that, you know, not only do I think that they're excellent drug targets, um, 
I think that they could be used for so, so much more. For instance, are there certain GPCR expression patterns on tumors that can be used as markers, right? Yeah. I mean, they're, 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 they're very unique. There's a pattern recognition. There are pattern recognition opportunities in GPCRs. They're the most abundant family, right? Yeah. Um, you no, want to no, say something? I can no, see No, I was going to say, yeah. And, and it's true. And one, one thing that we have, sometimes we don't have the tools. Sometimes we, we don't have the antibodies to recognize these. We're talking about pathology and images. You need a tool to be able to to stain your your receptor. And the other thing I wanted to mention is uh, splice variants are GBCR splice variants. Just they drive these these protein these guys drive me nuts because I'm always trying to figure out okay why would you have multiple proteins that are produced out of one gene that have different lengths different you know shapes and then why would these signal differently or would these interact together or would there be a preference for a splice variant one to to form a dimer with a heterodimer with another one and like, there's so many questions that i wish we could answer when it comes to to gpcrs but splice variants are, are the top of my list in there yeah mu opioid receptor over 20 plus splice variants in humans 40 plus in 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 mice right but most others have just have like one or two or three, right? That's yeah. uh, that's the big winner. And it's like, what is going on there? And, you know, uh, many of them can be detected in different cell types. This Pasternak's work, right? Um, uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, I also think that there are huge opportunities in biosensor design, in synthetic biology design. You know, I think a huge, a huge opportunity as pointed out by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is, you know, fungal pathogens, right? Unlike bacteria and other microbes, fungal pathogens have GPCRs. You know, this is how they mate, right? Yes. And, you know, Chris Tate has the structure of sterile two from mm -hmm. uh, Saccharomyces. And, you know, mm -hmm. there are definitely, you know, real world impacts that can be had yeah. looking at these re receptors in other in other organisms yes uh, um uh i've already mentioned design but i mean they're eminently uh designable for a variety of uh, of of needs um i know you know one group um one group in uh denmark michael jensen what 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 they do um using yeast as a chassis is you know they're trying to um they're trying to uh, build synthetic uh, pathways that make new compounds and then actually have, you know, receptors that have been changed by directed evolution. Some of the stuff we're doing too, that actually sense some of these so that the, the system can sense when the product's been made, right? So there's this just, it's such a robust, you know, uh, you know, prototypical fold capable of yeah. so much functionality that it comes back to the design I wanted to do in the first place. Really awesome. All right, top three aha moments that shaped your trajectory. Based on our conversation, I, I can pinpoint a couple that stood out for me, but I want you to maybe take a moment and verbalize those. To me, it's more of a continuum 
<laughs> I, uh, uh, I, it's, uh, I, I feel like I'm not smart enough for aha moments because every time I'm like, aha, this is a nature paper. Then the next day we come in <laughs> and we can't repeat, right? Uh, uh, so maybe I try to stay away from aha because I'm just superstitious. <laughs> Anything that you feel like might have changed the way you think about science or your work or anything organic chemistry um really really changed the way i viewed science it it actually merged the chemi the chemistry and the visual for me and then i discovered proteins in the same way from that so that was a big transition it was like go to medical school or you know go into basic research um, another aha moment for me was in my last semester of undergrad when I took C++ because I presumed that everyone in graduate school knew how to code. Then I got to graduate school and no one knew how to code. <laughs> and I was ahead of the game and and, uh, and that and that really helped, you know, that aspect uh, take off. Um, and then the other aha moment is like, you know, I, I do my best work when I have balance in my life, when, you know, uh, yeah, when I know my family's set, like anyone else, right? And it, it's, and discovering that, you know, finding that balance, and that's a constant battle, right? That's a constant fight when yes, you're passionate is. about anything, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. That is definitely the constant battle because you want to be present. But then you mentioned, you know, being able to sit in front of your computer and eight hours pass by like this because you're so oh. passionate about your work. But then there's people waiting for you at home. Oh, I get in trouble even at home. <laughs> I, I can be very not present at home. <laughs> yes, that's something I'm working on on changing as well, especially when, when there's something bugging me. I dream about things. Yeah. Uh, and then I wake up sometimes in the middle of the night and I'm like, no, no, it's midnight. You should be sleeping. And it did happen that I worked for two hours from midnight to 2 a.m. And then went back to sleep because I solved what I needed to solve. I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> it's I, an extreme, I, but it, it happens. I have been working on code for literally a year and I literally solved it at 5 a.m. The problem I, I, I did. Well, you know, I thought I'd solved it like many times. But oh, I yeah. knew that I did. And my wife went into labor at that time. It was a snowstorm in North Carolina. This is 5 a.m. I closed my laptop, which was a Mac, multiple screens open. I did not get back to that screen for six months. Wow. And when I did, I confirmed that, you know, life happened. You know, I was yeah. still working in the lab. You know, I really couldn't take time. But that was kind of a side thing I was doing for the, it was really the core of this finder software I have. Right. And that, that I was able to come back to it and uh, unbelievable how time, yeah. how time flies. And yeah, that's incredible. All right. Before we let you go, two last questions, any advice for junior scientists who want to contribute to the field? I really, you know, you have to know the fundamentals. You have to be able to connect to your peers. But at the same time, you have to have the courage to think outside the box and look at things from new angles and to, to search for, you know, what your niche 
could be or where the field can go. And, you know, imagination is a massive form of intelligence and it can be practiced. Yes, and, and it should be. I think it should it be should practiced. Be. And I feel like sometimes when you're younger, and I think pretty much speak of experience, when, when I was younger, I was so focused on learning what exists that there was little space to close the book and think about what else yes and i think it was it was coming from a space where you're you're not born with confidence you build that confidence so there is this space where you build your confidence you build your knowledge and that then you say okay i'm ready to explore and do something new absolutely it also happens when you start to give your first talks related to your research right you feel like you have to drag everyone through everything that you've been through instead yes. of telling <laughs> a nice, yes. you know, you know and, and then you finally gain that perspective and then you start to think like, oh, you know, in bigger terms, you know, and you yes. can step away. Yeah, which it's something that I, I typically do. So we do have volunteers within our team and in exchange for the work that they do which I try to limit as much as possible because these people, they, these volunteers are PhD students or postdocs. Um, I make myself available to review presentations, to review papers, to review whatever I can. And I'm brutally honest with them. And I keep telling them, why is this here? Is this important? What's the story? You just lost me. And I do understand. And I had the same problem. As a PhD student, you want to tell everything that you've done but then you you can't drag everyone through every pipetting experiment that you've done you have to tell the story because people will remember the story absolutely and not the details i mean details matter don't get me wrong but you need to be able to hold the person's hand and say well now i'm going to tell you this story and we're going to deep dive into this this is important because it helps build the rest of the story and this is something that I think, unfortunately, it's not taught. No. You have to you have to make the mistakes and then get this. Or if you're fortunate, then you have a, a PI or you have a mentor who's going to, at the first time you do this, tell you, wait a minute, no, no, no. This is great. You have all the Lego pieces, but how about having a table filled with Lego pieces? How about we build something that people can admire? Well, you froze for a little bit, but I'm sure whatever you said was just <laughs> so inspirational. I just, I was... you know. <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll repeat it. I was talking no. about, you know, when, when the way I think about a PhD thesis defense presentation in its most raw form is like 30,000 pieces of Lego on a table. Yeah, exactly. Right. And then the polished version of it, at least that's what you're hoping for, is a sculpture of something. I don't know. Oh, it might be the Millennium Falcon or some, something that people look at and like, oh, yeah, you built this. You know, aside from actually having data for your thesis, like how the talk goes is a really excellent descriptor of your level of progress. Yeah. Right. As you yeah. as you as you mature. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. We all struggle I... So. We all we all did. I I was a total mess at my thesis defense. Twenty minutes in, I had to apologize and say I'm sorry, but I have to start from the beginning. And they allowed me, and I started from the beginning. And it was the worst 
thesis defense, at least in my opinion. Uh, but then I really did well at the question part where someone in the audience lift put up her hand and she said, can I play? This is fun. Can I ask questions? And I said, no, let's talk about it later. Let's just get this over with. But then, you know, it's not, doesn't end up on your PhD diploma, messed up the presentation, started over again, 20 minutes in. All right, then last question. If and when you have open positions in your lab, where can people find you? Uh I usually will put uh, information on Twitter or the website, or we have the Blue Sky account, or I'll just kind of reach out to the network. I don't. I mm -hmm. guess I should use LinkedIn more. I guess I don't. Yeah, uh, you should use the Dr. GPCR ecosystem. Dr. GPCR, yeah. Job I, page. Yeah, job it's page. Just a, we do have a job page. Uh, you can just use a Google form in the ecosystem, and then we'll put up the the information. We're actually in the process of revamping our job page and categorizing the job ads. Right now we have boxes and the newest go at the top, but it's a mix and match of industry and academic uh, jobs. So we're working on revamping those. And But two months ago, we um, started collaborating with someone named Mark Schmeisel, who's actually a recruiter for, for industry and he's become our chief matchmaker at Dr. GPCR. Mm, very cool really cool guy yeah this comes back around to having a community right people need to know yeah. who's up and ready exactly exactly super dan thank you so much for your time don't go anywhere when we as when we stop recording we're gonna let people wonder what we talk about afterwards but <laughs> i had a lot of fun chatting with you likewise this was awesome thank you thank you can i ask you a favor please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Many of you come back and watch our videos but aren't subscribed. Having more subscribers will help us get you more content. Also, mark your calendars and join us for the inaugural Endocrine Metabolic GPCRs meeting taking place April 22nd to 23rd in on this year in Birmingham in the UK. Thank you for joining us and listening to this Dr. GPCR podcast episode. We would like to thank our guests, our Dr. GPCR team members, Attila, Ines, Montserrat, Ivana, Andreina, and Valint. If you like our podcast, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. You can also leave us a testimonial at drgpcr.com slash testimonials and subscribe to our monthly newsletter directly in the ecosystem. Another way to support us is to share your favorite Dr. GPCR program with your network and colleagues. Don't forget, we're also starting up the Dr. GPCR University. So if you'd like to join us for Dr. Karen Atkins class or you'd like to teach a class, please don't forget to reach out to us at hello at drgpcr.com. Until next time, stay safe.